square fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome, friends, to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Our episode today will be a little different than normal. I've chosen as a means of a test, uh, looking toward the possibility of doing audible books, I've uh, chosen to read an essay, number five out of 23 essays, in my book, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. The entirety of this podcast will be my reading of a chapter or an essay titled Time Travel. Recently, I engaged in some time travel. I didn't jump forward 800,000 years in H.G. Wells' time machine or strap myself into a DeLorean with Christopher Lloyd and Michael J. Fox for a trip back to my future. Mine was a journey back in time as I took a trip to the settings of the cherished hunting and fishing tales that have remained as alive and vibrant in my memory as in the days I first read them 60 years ago. It was a wonderful trip that left me with one regret. Why didn't I do this years ago? I'll explain. I was six years old when my father, a pipe fitter that traveled the eastern part of the country building power and chemical plants along the major waterways, found himself working in the town, the atom bomb, busiest diffusion process. He would work at three separate such plants, Paducah, Kentucky, Portsmouth, Ohio, and at Oak Ridge. His exposure to asbestos and radiation in those plants would later shorten his life, but that's not the object of my letter to you this month. From my earliest memory, books have been my treasures. I learned to read at an early age and have never lost my love for turning the printed page. I recall reading every word on the cereal box at the breakfast table. When Dad returned to our home in West Virginia, he brought with him a book that I immediately devoured. I've read this book more times than Muhammad Ali has his Koran. I sat beside Ali one time on a flight from Kalamazoo to Memphis, and he borrowed my pen to underline passages in his Book of Islam. But I digress. The book, 20 Years Hunting and Fishing in the Great Smoky Mountains, was written by self-proclaimed perfect hunter and fisherman Samuel J. Honeycutt and published by Byron's Printers and Publishers, in Maryville, Tennessee. Originally printed in 1926, the copy my dad bought and passed on to me was a 1951 edition. My good friend Bob Plott devoted a portion of one of his books, A History of Hunting in the Great Smoky Mountains, to Sam Honeycutt. Critics, Plott included, point out the lack of literary prowess in Honeycutt's telling of his exploits, but Plot freely concedes Sam provides a clear snapshot of a bygone era and golden age hunters, the likes of which we'll never see again. Keep in mind, at this time in my life, I'm living in the heart of coal mining country in southern West Virginia. I'm by now accompanying my dad on limited hunts in that rugged country where game, especially coons and bears, was extremely scarce. In fact, it would be years before black bears began to inhabit the worked-out strip mines in our part of the state, where they are now plentiful. Coons were nearly as scarce. I've written before about my dad's instructions to stamp out any coon tracks we would find along the creeks as we were hunting or trout fishing. Although those species were rare in our neck of the woods, they were the game animals for which we hunted. And so, Honeycutt's tales of camp hunting deep, 
Nolan, Forney, and Hazel Creeks in western North Carolina, although appearing in less than flamboyant prose, spoke to me more clearly than Ted Trueblood's or Jack O'Connor's acclaimed tales of hunting dangerous game on the African continent that I read about in the slick pages of outdoor magazines. Although I had not visited the 440,000-acre National Park when I read 20 years hunting and fishing in the Great Smoky Mountains, through Hunnicutt's eyes I saw the park as a mystical land of lofty peaks and swift cold creeks where hounds and hunters match wits with North, uh, North America's most exciting game. The Smoky Mountains loomed very large as I compared them to our mountains at home. The highest point in West Virginia, Spruce Knob, peaks at 4,863 feet. We would in later years hunt the Cold Knob area of Greenbrier County at an elevation of 4,280 feet. Beautiful, wild, high country in its own right. The Smoky Mountain region, by contrast, boasts 16 peaks that reach or exceed 6,000 feet, with the highest point in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, Clingman's Dome, topping out at 6,643 feet, nearly 2,000 feet higher than Spruce Knob. Mounts Mitchell and Craig, also in North Carolina, but outside the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, impressively rise 6,684 feet and 6,647 feet above the sea, respectively. Another source of fascination with the Smokies for me stemmed from my dad's love for the plot dog. As I hold Honeycutt's book today, I see my dad's note on the inside cover page. Plot, see page 62 and 70. Later in life, I would visit, along with my son Chris, the plot balsam marker on the Blue Ridge Parkway, erected to the memory of Amos Plot and his famous bear dogs. And I'd experience the thrill of participation in the dedication of a historical marker near Waynesville to commemorate the plot breed and the family that made them famous. The Great Smoky Mountain National Park and the plot breed are eternally intertwined. But again, this is really not a story about the plot dog or my family's involvement with the breed. Let's get back on subject. After establishing a residence in Florida last year, I began to experience a yearning for the mountains. As most readers were enduring one of the hardest winters in history up north, I enjoyed coon hunting on the big cattle ranches with my friends, the Slaughters, or kayaking for bass in the freshwater lakes and getting the hang of catching saltwater species inshore. But as the days began to warm up here, a plan to visit the creeks and mountains of Sam Honeycutt's Carolina began to evolve. The plot dog and I are inseparable, and perhaps more than anything, I wanted to visit the country from which my dad derived the name for our kennel that has endured for more than 50 years, Bear Pen Plots. Situated in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, between the Nolan and Deep Creek watersheds on the North Carolina side is Bear Pen Ridge. Honeycutt made many references to this area in his stories, and my dad adopted his kennel name from that source. Here's a quote from Honeycutt's book. I told him to stay at camp with the dogs, and I would hunt for signs of the bear. He asked where we would go to hunt for bear signs, and I told him I was going to Bear Pen Ridge. I said, all right, I'll be going and I went up the creek until I got to the mouth of Bear Pen Branch, then up the branch on Bear Pen Ridge, and the whole ridge was worked up with bear signs. They had raked and mashed around there as though there had been 
25 bears there in one gang. My brother was getting wood the same as the night before. When I got to camp, he had the end of it very near full of wood. I asked him, what do you want with so much wood? And he said, it's going to snow. Then he asked, did you find any bear signs? I said, yes, the bears have wallowed all the bushes down on Bear Pen Ridge. A quote from Honeycutt also inspired the name of the website I operated for 10 years, plotdogs.com. Here's another Honeycutt quote. This hunt was made by me and Mark Cathy and others. There were nine hunters and we had 14 dogs. My dogs were Troop, Trail, and Lead. I also had three dogs of John Everett's trying them out. Ed's dogs were Bat, Troop, and Bird. Mark's dogs were Dread, Jolly, Old Wheeler, and two dogs belonging to Joe Morris. Their names were Rock and Dave. All these were hounds except Mark's dogs. They were plot dogs. Mother's Day provided the perfect catalyst for the trip. I would spend a few days with my 92-year-old mother in West Virginia before heading to the Smokies. I would stop to fish one of my favorite trout streams in northwestern North Carolina before heading to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And to cap off my travels, I'd revisit the farm in Middle Tennessee where my dad was raised and where I spent many glorious days hunting and fishing when I was a kid. On May 8th, I loaded the Ford with my camping equipment, the kayak, and an assortment of fishing tackle and pointed it north to the mountains. When I returned on the 23rd of May, two weeks later, I had logged 2,800 miles on the odometer, each one thoroughly enjoyed. This was to be a rough affair of tent camping, albeit in campgrounds rather than in the numerous primitive campsites along the trails in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Taking that angle would require backpacking into the wilderness and better judgment persuaded me not to attempt that alone. Had I been several years younger, or perhaps had a traveling companion along, I would have preferred to have done it that way. It doesn't take long at my age when hiking in that kind of torturous terrain to realize that the mind is still willing, but the body is growing progressively weaker. In all, I spent four days with my mother, three days each in Ashe County, and Bryson City, and three days in Middle Tennessee. Except for the nights in the home where I was raised, the rainy night my friends Andy and Bryn Green took pity on me and invited me into their beautiful home in West Jefferson, and the three nights I spent with my cousins Pam and Eddie Schreiber at my dad's boyhood home in Tennessee. My home was a nylon and aluminum affair that was easy on the budget, and a welcome retreat after a long day in the mountains. It was the closest I came to experiencing a camp on Deep Creek, as described by Honeycutt, but I did go to sleep each night, breathing smoky mountain air and listening to the murmur of a smoky mountain trout stream. The campfires after supper each evening were great therapy and provided hours of total relaxation. I stopped at a familiar fly shop, Watauga River Anglers, near Boone, North Carolina, on my way to the Smokies. Talking with the owner of the shop, Steve Michael, I told him about Honeycutt's book and my mission, as we also talked fly fishing. The subject moved to famed Smoky Mountain sportsman Mark Cathy. Cathy, along with Horace Kephart, are buried in a hilltop cemetery in Bryson City, and I vowed to visit their graves while there. Kephart was the famed author of the classic Our Southern Highlanders. An outlander from Pennsylvania by way of St. Louis, 
Kephart came to Hazel Creek in 1904 and lived among the Smoky Mountains and their people until being killed in an automobile accident near Bryson City in April of 1931. Kephart's frank and noticeably better written accounts of life among the colorful inhabitants of this wild and beautiful land did not replace but rather augmented my love for Honeycutt's simple journal. Kephart definitely helped to whet to a razor edge my appetite to walk where these sportsmen walked a century or more ago. On May 16th, I rose at dawn, consumed a breakfast of scrambled eggs, hash brown potatoes, sliced tomatoes, and bacon prepared on the Coleman stove, and left the Deep Creek campground in Bryson City to seek out the storied 20 years land of Sam Honeycutt. Since retirement, every journey from home is accompanied by some type of fish-catching device. Knowing that Smoky Mountain streams are full of wild trout, my plan for the day was to fish Nolan Creek and hike its accompanying trails. I chose to fish the lower end of Nolan Access by a Great Smoky Mountains National Park trail from Lakeview Drive, locally known as the Road to Nowhere. The road, a promise to the citizens of Swain County, North Carolina, whom gave the majority of their lands, public and private, to the foundations of Fontana Lake and the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, was to provide access through the mountains from Bryson City to Fontana, 30 miles to the west. Of most importance to mountain families was the access to numerous family cemeteries that the highway would provide. Environmental concerns stopped the project after only six miles, including a tunnel that had been completed, thus the reference to a road that went nowhere. It was not until 2010 that the U.S. Department of the Interior paid $52 million to Swain County in lieu of finishing the road. I would have chosen the upper accesses via the Nolan Divide Trail, but the 3.8-mile hike from Clingman's Dome to the Nolan Creek Trail discouraged me. Soft Florida living for the last year hadn't prepared me for that kind of workout. I chose to hike from the lower trailhead to the mouth of Nolan and fish up. Nolan is a beautiful stream, as are all the Smoky Mountain streams, although access to the water and wading swift water over slippery rocks would have suited a younger man. I recall the days when my dad could no longer enjoy trout fishing due the, to the inability to negotiate just such conditions. Could this be happening to me? I put that thought quickly aside. Nolan Creek was full of trout, but I find, found myself more occupied with what the Bible calls vain imaginations as I dreamed the days of Sam, Mark, Horace, and multitudes of other Smoky Mountain hunters as they strained to hear the cry of the pack above the incessant roar of this very stream. I caught a few brook trout on Nolan, but mostly I enjoyed the beauty and solitude of the mountains that day. The next day I would drive to Cherokee and fish a stream called Straight Fork in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park at the advice of a hiker named Rich, whom I met on the Nolan Creek Trail. He and his elderly dad, for whom he was waiting on the trail, had camped at Campsite 64, some four miles upstream. He gave me a Great Smoky Mountains National Park map, and though though he didn't say it, he was thinking a stream like Straight Fork would provide much easier access for a guy like me. I seem to get that a lot these days. Readers may be thinking, what's all this talk of hiking, fishing, and bear hunting tales have to do with coon hunting? I'm getting to that. Interwoven into Honeycutt's stories are the exploits of his favorite coon hound, Old Muse. 
Bob Plot cites Muse's ancestry as half black and tan and half beagle. Clearly, Honeycutt, as he was wont to do with about anything personal, believed Muse to be the best coon dog in the mountains, and if his stories of her exploits were factual, and I have no reason to believe otherwise, she truly was a wonder. Here is Honeycutt's tale of a coon hunt planned by me and my brother, written in his signature rambling style in which the semicolon becomes his period. This habit is evident throughout the volume. We prepared for the hunt one morning and started for Round Top, which is nine miles from home. We kept our dogs tied until we got past the Fox Range went across the pullback trail by the Bryson place and up the creek to the Sassafras Ford. I had on boots, so I waded to the creek and carried my brother over. We had old Muse with us, and there we turned her loose, keeping my brother's dogs tied, knowing old Muse would start nothing except coons. We went up the Pole Road Creek as fast as we could, thinking we might catch a coon. When we got to the forks of Pole Road, Old Muse picked up a coon track and went trailing it. My brother turned his dogs loose, and they went trailing with her. They went on out left-hand prong to the head of Pole Road, trailing very fast, and at the Pole Road, we caught up with the dogs. We left our packs here and followed them, knowing this would be the way he would come back to where we intended to camp. They went across the Fork Ridge to Pole Road Creek and down the right-hand prong they trailed, and just before they got to the forks of the creek, they treed up a large tree near where they first started trailing. This tree being hollow, me and my brother soon cut it down, and we got two nice coons out of the tree. It now being very near dark, we hurried back to get our packs at the left-hand prong of Pole Road. When we got back to our packs, it was dark, so I told my brother, it is three miles to camp, and we had better stay here tonight. My brother said it was going to rain. We would better go to camp. I told him if he would get wood, I would build us a shed that would turn rain or snow. I had noticed a lot of chestnut bark that day when we left our packs where it had fell off the chestnut logs. I cut two poles and set them against a large tree, lean-to fashion, and placed small poles across them. I then made a roof with chestnut bark and set up bark at each side. This made us a good warm camp for the night. It snowed instead of rain. We built our fire up against the tree and rested well that night. After we had finished our camp and eaten supper, we skinned our coons. Next morning, there was a heavy snow on the ground. I fried some coon and we ate our breakfast. After breakfast, we made our way to Round Top Camp, and by the time we got to the camp, it was very cold. We chopped a lot of wood for our fire. We stayed in camp all day. By night, it was so cold, my brother said, the coons won't travel tonight, so I decided to stay in camp. The next morning, it was very cold, and I knew coons would not come out until it got warmer. The third morning, it had cleared up and was nice and warm. We were high on the mountain, and the sun shone early where we were. I told my brother, we will go out today, coon hunting. He seemed to think it useless to go, but I told him we might catch some coons. We took old Muse and his two young dogs and went down Pole Creek Road. Near the forks of the creek, my brother wanted to come back to camp, for he thought the coons had not traveled. But I told him it would be as near to cross Burnt Spruce Ridge and go back up Bear Creek that the Burnt Spruce Ridge divided Bear Creek and Pole Road, and our camp was near the top of the divide. The only difference in going back to camp from, from there would be crossing the Burnt Spruce Ridge. 
we went across Burn Spruce Ridge on to Bear Creek. And by the time we got in hearing of Bear Creek, Old Muse was trailing. And pretty soon my brother's dogs put in trailing with her. They went up Bear Creek and we went on after them as fast as we could go. They trailed to the forks of Bear Creek, then left the creek going up a little branch toward Bear Pen Ridge. And there we heard the dogs running as though they were looking at the coon. I said to my brother, coons have been out today. Pretty soon old mews treed at the head of Big Branch. We hurried on. I beat my brother there. The dogs had treed up a little birch tree. I looked all over the tree and could not see anything. I spoke to old muse and said, Are you telling me a lie? Just then I saw a coon up on the underside of the tree, about 12 feet from the ground on a small limb. I shot it off and the dogs ran and grabbed it. I went down and took it from the dogs. By this time, my brother had got there. Old Muse went back to the tree and began barking up the tree. I told my brother to call the dogs up the hill that there were more coons in the tree. He said, there's one on that limb bending down the hill. Don't you see it? By this time, I saw it. I shot it off. The dogs got it, and I went down and took it from the dogs. When old muse turned it loose, she sprang for a hemlock tree. When she reached the tree, she began barking in a hole at the foot of this tree. We built a fire over this hole, and out came another coon. This made us three coons, so we started for camp. I told my brother that it was good for old muse to know where all the coons were. He said that beat anything he ever saw a dog do. By the time we got to camp, it was dark. We got wood for the night, prepared our supper, went to bed early, and got a good night's rest. The next morning, we packed our things and went home. There are 40 like stories of coon and bear hunts as well as fishing trips in Sam Honeycutt's book. They aren't going to win any prizes for pros and critics will turn up their noses at his style. But his stories still captivate me today, as they did in 1952. I plan to return to the Smokies soon and actually go to the Bryson Place, which served as base camp on Deep Creek for many of the region's hunting legends and for many of Sam's tales as well. I can't go back in time to the days when catches of 100 or more trout in a day were commonplace and bears could be killed by the dozens. Nor can I return to the days when I could walk from the break of day into full dark, leading four bear hounds over rough mountain terrain as I faithfully followed my dad on the hunts of my youth. But I can travel through time in the pages of wonderful books like Sam's, to live adventures the likes of which the flatland hunter has seldom seen or can reasonably conceive. I conclude with a confession. Having traveled the country over, much of it throughout the flatlands of Coon Country, the following admission by a Highlander that had ventured from the mountains to work in the South, found in the pages of Horace Kephart's Our Southern Highlanders, speaks for me as well. Kephart wrote, Mountaineers everywhere are passionately attached to their homes. At the first glance, they will return and thenceforth will cling to their patrimonies, however poor these be. So too, our man of the Appalachians, quote, I went down to the valley once, and I declare, I nigh saltered. Peers like there ain't breath enough to go around and all them people. And the water don't do a body no good. And you can't eat hearty nor sleep good o' nights. Course they pay big money down thar, but I'd heap rather catch me a big old coon for his hide. Boys, I done home for my dog, Fiddler and all the times we've had a-hunting 
and the trout fishing and the smell of the woods and nobody bossing and jowering at all. I'm a hillbilly, all right, and they needn't to glory their old flat lands to me. End quote. Although Sam Honeycutt's book is out of print and extremely hard to find, should you like to read more about the dogs and the hunters of the Great Smoky Mountains, written in serious depth and style, I highly recommend Bob Plott's books. There are four of them, and they're available online at bob at bobplot.com. Jim Gasquies, Hunting and Fishing in the Great Smokies, published in 1947, is another great book on the Great Smoky Mountain National Park region. It's published by the University of North Carolina Press, Chapel Hill. And of course, Kephart's Our Southern Highlanders. You should be able to find it from the booksellers online. Gone to the Dogs listeners, that concludes our podcast for today. I realize that it's somewhat shorter than normal, but I wanted to use you as my guinea pigs to see if you prefer listening to these stories uh, as I read them to actually buying a hard copy book and reading it for yourself. So I welcome your comments. I'm on Facebook at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, dot F, dot Fielder. Uh, also on Instagram by the same. And uh, I, uh, I'm i easy to find on Facebook. So if you would please uh, send your comments along. And next week we'll get back to a normal format of broadcasting. I thank you for your patience. I hope you enjoyed the story. Friends, to close out the podcast today, I wanted to check up with my longtime friend Fred Moran, the Redbone Man, up in the hills of Pennsylvania. The following is a phone conversation already in progress with Fred Moran. Enjoy. How, how it's aggravating and, and all the uh, all the above, but uh, you seem to have found the fountain of youth up there in those Pennsylvania hills. What have you I been up to? I, I wish I did. Listen to this. Uh, I do, like a lot of people know, my mother used to give me heck. My wife gives me heck all the time. Why do I hunt so much by myself? I I like hunting by myself. I quit when I want, do what I want, and so forth. Uh, I realize yeah. you can have a fall and stuff like that, and I've hurt myself in the woods, but I do a lot of hunting by myself. One night I was out recently, uh, maybe a month ago, and I went to the state game lounge, which is only six miles from where I live now. There's over uh, close to 3,000 acres to hunt in there. And the public's allowed to hunt there uh, for deer, bear, and everything else. In fact, that's where I treat the bear at on Memorial Day weekend. But anyhow, it isn't that great coon hunting. Too many guys hunt it, and they kill everything they treat. Uh, if, if you see three coon there, man, you, that's like winning the world on there. But uh, I was in there one night, and I went way back. There's a cul-de-sac, and there was a Ford truck park there, pretty new one, because it was all shiny and that, and I seen the dog parks, and I didn't recognize the truck. So I pulled up to it, and the guy, he sat behind the wheel. He didn't have the window down, so I don't know how he could be listening for the dog. I said, what are you doing? He says, coon hunting. He says, uh, we talked for a minute or two. I said, where's your dog? He said, that's what I'm looking for. He said, I ain't heard him <laughs> in a good while. He says, are you Fred Moran? I said, yeah. I didn't know who he was, but he recognized me. He says, I thought you died. <laughs> I said, I says, a that lot was of people, rude. <laughs> oh, no, I don't, that don't bother me. I I says a lot of people probably wish I did, but I'm still <laughs> kicking. He's the third guy in the last, say, four or five months as he thought that he heard I died. I, I don't know. Oh, where. my goodness. <laughs> the buzzards <laughs> are circling, Fred. <laughs> Pardon me? The Would buzzards are circling. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess they are. I guess they are. Uh, but I've been hunting. Uh, Patty went with me one night. I don't know what we run. Uh, it wasn't a railroad track, and it sure wasn't no coon track, I don't think. <laughs> well, maybe it was. I don't know. Uh, we just, I took uh, a two-year-old I got, and the pup that's six months old, she just brought her one black dog. Her dog opened up immediately as soon as we turned loose on the creek. Well, we've hunted that creek a hundred times. It, it ain't, there's no woods there. Maybe uh, trees line the creek on both sides, and it goes for maybe a, almost a mile. But you usually I tree a coon in there. Well, her do- the dog, the two-year-old I'm running is pretty tight mouth, but uh, he didn't open at all. She's running like she's looking at him. I was ready to say, what's going on here? Just in mind trees. Well, I'm used to that, but uh, her dog trees also. Uh, we let him tree for maybe three minutes and they're barking good. We started up to him. Next thing I know, the race is on again. I said, what's going on here? They go about another 300 yards, make a circle, and come back down the creek just like they went up it. Now, mind you, they're about 900 yards from us, but they're coming toward us. I figure I'm going to see what this is. Well, before they got there, they treat again. They did the same thing, treat for a couple minutes, treat good. Next thing we, we're starting to off to the races the third time. I said, it's got to be a bobcat. I said, that's the only thing I could figure. Well, it ran a little further, maybe a couple hundred more yards. And the tree, this time they treat like they should tree and they stayed. We get all the way up there. Now, we run this track once before. I know at least once, maybe twice. We get up to the trees, a big tree, and full of vines and that. But it's a tree, there's no leaves on this time of year, so you should see whatever they got. But a lot of the trees, it's like an umbrella. The limbs go way out and go almost touch the ground. Mm-hmm. And I feel the dogs didn't make a wide enough circle to pick it up from the main trunk of the tree. And whatever it was went out, one of them limbs had jumped off and they never picked it up. I'd give a $5 bill to know what the heck they run. I still feel it was a bobcat, but I don't know for sure. But it it just funny to us. I mean, you had to be there. I mean, they were running just like they were looking at it. Now, I've run bobcat and treat them. My kid had a bobcat dog. I just put it to sleep about six months ago. He was 13 years old. He was a good one. And we used to hunt him. And on every Saturday and Sunday in the wintertime, uh, especially when the snow came on. And I've seen the different things that he did. But uh, uh, he wasn't the greatest, but he was pretty good. I bought him down Tennessee off an old black guy. He says he tired chasing them bobcat. And he had him for a coon dog. And the dog would treat coon. And uh, uh, But he was a pretty good dog. He was a lot of fun. and. Uh, and we had him for good, oh, at least eight, ten years. Uh, I bought him when he was only about two years old, and I think he was thirteen when I put him to sleep. So yeah, uh, well, let me uh, let me ask you something and see what you sure. think about this. Uh, in the podcast uh, just before the this one, um, I was talking to Jim Meeks from down North Carolina. Jimmy Meeks. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know Jimmy or not. I heard of him. Yeah, the Yadkin River guy. And we were talking about bobcats and how um, someone uh, had told him uh, that was a cat hunter that, you know, the bobcats tend to jump out on you at night and and run. But in the daytime, they'll stay up. They'll stay treed if the dogs tree them. Usually, usually. Well, I just wonder if there's any chance you could go in there in the daytime and try to strike that track and see if you could get a race out of it and maybe you would stay up if you well, treat them. Just a thought. We're, I might take a walk here tomorrow because we're going to have snow tonight. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
it's supposed to be pretty good snow, but then it's going to get warm again tomorrow and rain. So I don't know. I but uh, uh, but like I say, they're funny as heck. When one time I wasn't with the guys, we got, I don't know if you, I'm sure you heard of them, but I don't know if you ever saw one. We got a lot of fisher up here too. I've only uh, seen films of them, but I know you do have them because they're uh, nasty. Yeah. They're yeah. nasty. And a lot of coon hunters blame them on killing young coon. And mm. they're vicious enough to do it. I know that. Uh, the game warden that used to hunt with me, he confiscated one off a guy that trapped it out of season. It was 26 pounds. Wow. I'll tell you what, he had teeth on him like a coon dog, believe me. He mm. had big teeth on him. I was surprised. And, um, but uh, aren't they somewhat guys, like a mink or something of that family? They, they look a lot like a mink, but they're fatter, bigger, and they, this would yeah. weigh 26 pounds at the game warden. Now. Wow, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a big, big one. one. Yeah. I, I treat one where I used to live, where I used to live, me and my grandson was hunting. He was about 15 at the time. And the dogs run a track. And these dogs that I had at that particular time had always been straight. I'd never had no trouble with it. But this track was going, oh, man, it, it drove me crazy. I couldn't figure out what it was. I said, Dave, you go up the edge of the woods there by the field, and I'll go down below. Take a couple leashes with you. Whatever dog comes through there first, beat its ass. I said, because this ain't no coon. <laughs> I said, now go down below. Well, the dogs started coming toward us. Just before they got to the field, they made a U-turn and went back in the woods and treed. I couldn't believe it. So we go back and we start to the dogs and he beats me to the tree. Um, and, uh, but, oh, maybe by 12, 15 yards. And he comes back to me and meets me and he says, they got something funny up there. So I said, what the heck could be funny up there? So I go into the tree and I recognize it right away. It's a fisher. And I know he's going to jump off because he's going up one limb, coming down, going up the other limb. I told my grandson, I said, grab the dogs and tie them up. I said, I don't want them to rip it up. And I shot it out. It was a 14-pound female. And uh, I never expected to tree a fisher where I tree does. This is where I used to live. And I hunted that woods a thousand times. I didn't even know there was fisher down there. But I talked to a trapper later. And he told me he got them on film. You know, he got trail cameras out. And he said he never caught one. But he says he got pictures of at least two or three different ones from the size of, you know, one's a big one. But that was the only fisher I ever got. And uh, but I've seen them. And we when we had the bobcat dog, we treat him. We had a there used to be a black guy. He moved to Wisconsin. Uh, we all called him the shadow. He used to call me everywhere. But uh, uh, I was his hero. He used to call me Uncle Freddie. His name was Greg Hoskins. He, and he had coon dogs. I met him coming out of a restaurant one time. He seen a dog box in the truck, and he says, you, uh, what kind of dogs you got? I said, red dogs. And we hooked up ever since that, and he came hunting with me, and we became good buddies and so forth. And I didn't remember him. But when I was in the dog control business, I find him about three years before that where he lived on his dogs running around. And he used to laugh about it all the time. But I find <laughs> him and I didn't recognize him. But he he's a good guy. He just moved yeah. to Wisconsin. He lived there before, but he's got a house down here yet. He's coming back next week or week after. Uh, see his kin folks down here and then go back to Wisconsin. Friends, got, good friends come in all colors, shapes, oh, and yeah. sizes. This guy's and, a character. This guy, yeah. he, he had some good dogs. I got him a, a walker dog. She was good. He won a uh, mountain music hunt, which was one of the bigger hunts in Pennsylvania. 
he won a lot. He made her Grand Night Champions. He was a good mm. dog, and uh, he don't have any dogs right now. And him and my kid, my kid owns some property about thirty-one acres down where I used to live out in the woods. And he had a pig pen built, and they go, they went in halfers, and they were raising pigs down there. Boy, oh, that yeah. was that was something. Them two <laughs> two pig farmers. I got but, you. Well, let me rewind the tape here just a minute. Do uh, you think possibly that this track that you and Patty ran the other night was a fisher? It could. And I, and I told her later, and she agreed with me. It was one or the other. We felt a fisher mm-hmm. or a bobcat, yeah. and because they'll jump all over the trees too. Well, uh, you Bill, know, and and all the years of your experience, I'm sure you've seen coons jump out of trees too. I can what? I said, in all of your years of experience, I'm sure you've seen coons jump out oh, of yeah. trees too. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. often. But they no, will. no. Bill Mays, uh, when he was living, he was a walker man. Uh, he was an old timer, and he was hunting by himself one night. He treated a fishery, he told me, and he shot it out with his pistol or rifle or whatever. And it came down. He says it whipped three dogs and got in the rocks, and he couldn't get it out. He got too far back in there. He said, Fred, they... they would have whipped five dogs if I had them there. Now, mm. They're vicious. Yeah. And a lot of coon hunters tell me that they'll definitely kill young coon. I, I know they kill squirrels. That's their main uh, thing to go after. Is and, there any kind of season on them? I guess you can trap yeah, them. Yeah, they got a season. It yeah. usually runs about like coon season, only a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little shorter. And uh, well, now listen, do you have any porcupines in your oh, area? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh-huh. not where our coon club is, which is only 14 mile. We were having a meeting one day, and a guy looked out the window. There's a porcupine going across the yard it, it, where our coon wow. club is, and that's only 14 mile from my house. Wow. And um, so I haven't never seen none right here at the house, but mm-hmm. I've seen them. Besides a club, I've seen them about 15 mile a different direction. Yeah, we gone. We, we don't have many down here, and I'm glad of that. Well, a state they like be bad on a dog. Yeah, for sure. Well, a state like Pennsylvania, and you automatically think of the major cities, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and all up and down up the east uh, east side up there. But you've got a lot of wilderness and 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 uh, hunting territory in the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania that, has, according to the Game Commission, has more public hunting than any other state in the nation. That's that's, that's terrific. That's what they put in their pamphlets. Yeah, and we do have a lot. Uh, you go up north of where I live, seventy, eighty mile. The farmers up there love for coon hunters to come because they grow a lot of crops up there. The coon eat them out of house and uh, everything else. And I usually, Randy knows all about it. He goes over there. If you want to have a heck of a hunt, it's all level. The only place it is level. And you could treat 10, 15 coon a night if you got to one o'clock in the morning. Uh, They got them up there. Me and Timmy Bruin. Hunted in a pouring down rain one night till one o'clock in the morning. We seen, I believe, it was thirteen coon. That's a lot, even for Pennsylvania. Oh yeah, that's a lot for anywhere, for sure. It is. Well, what you got in terms of dog power these days? I don't have no power. I I tell you what, Steve, this has been my worst year in my lifetime. I I lost ten thousand three hundred dollars worth of dogs to cars this year. Oh man. And, and I had a good, about a month ago, uh, I had a two-year-old that I liked real well. He had, he wasn't acting right. I took him to vet, and they couldn't find a thing wrong with him. Well, he, he seemed to come around and be okay. Then he got a little sick again. I took him back to the vets. They've got about eight vets at this place, and they're pretty good. And they check, checked him for everything. Couldn't find a thing wrong. Well, he got better. 
at least to me, he did. And I was hunting him. But I, I had a coon in a box trap, and I decided to take it out and turn it loose for the pup. I figured I better take the older dog, well, I call him old, but he's only two, and so he can entice that pup. Well, I turned the coon loose, and the pup wasn't paying much attention, so I told, turned the old dog loose. The coon didn't. I should have given more lead and more time, but the coon went up a tree only about 75 yards away. But the older dog wasn't active, right? And the guy with me, uh, we, I shot the coon out for the pup. It was during season. This was only maybe two months ago. And uh, anyhow, the guy with me, I told him, I said, there's something wrong with that dog. He ain't active, right? I said, this must mean another trip back to the vet. I said, I'll take him tomorrow. This is around five o'clock. I put him in the pen. And uh, the next morning, I get up early. And I figure out, I'll feed them dogs right now. It's seven in the morning. I'll feed them dogs. And I'll put the one in the truck and go up to the vet and be the first one in line. So I go up there. He's laying in a pen dead. Oh, now, man. what he died from, I have no idea. The dog was a picture of health other than that day before where he acted funny and so forth. But mm. I don't know what he died from. I liked the dog. He had a loud mouth, and uh, he was a tree dog. He and, didn't um, go off He didn't uh, go off his feed, or, or was he? he? No, didn't, no. Uh, didn't go off. He had in the past, but he didn't at that time. Didn't go off his feet or anything. And they checked him for everything just about on that one trip I went up there. Okay. Mm. I heard of a dog down in Kentucky. And I knew the boy. He came up and tried a dog for me years ago. So I knew I I felt I could trust him and everything. I says, I'll tell you what. He told me what he wanted for the dog. I got him a little more closer to my price. I said, uh, you meet me on uh, Sunday. I'll just buy the dog. He's only 14 months old. He won over 300 some dollars in money hunts. I figured he had to do something. So he said, I can't go, but I'll send my wife. So I met his wife at the post office in Danville, West Virginia, and paid her for the dog bottom. Well, he had some faults, like I expected, but he was a tree dog, and he did go hunting, and that's the name of the game to me. Right. And uh, I kept hunting. Well, one night, me and Patty decided to hunt right across the road from where I live, back in the woods there. A guy gave me permission to hunt there, and the last time her and I hunted in there, we, I think we seen four coon in there, and we didn't kill none of them. So I thought, we ought to tree one there pretty quick. Well, Patty's dog struck first. My dog got in with it. Instead of going the way I planned on, they didn't. They headed toward the road. I grabbed the pup. He was near me. I threw him in the truck. I said, come on. I said, we got to head him off of the path because they're going right toward the highway. Mm -hmm. I, I floored it. I guarantee I was there in four minutes. My dog was already laying on the side of the road. Patty's got across the road. She was on trail on track back wow. in the other wood. And mine was there. And whoever hit him did have time to pull him to the side because he wasn't hit where I picked him up at. So uh, he he had three callers on him, and none of them were ruined. Anyhow, the tracking collar still working, so. I I hated that. And I've yeah. been looking for looking for something ever since. I bought this two year old. Yeah, and he's a nice young dog, but he ain't what I'm looking for. The good ones are few and far. They always been, and uh, and I'll tell you what. The prices they're asking for dogs nowadays. You can almost buy a pretty new car for that price. Yeah. Well, you uh, know, Fred. They're ridiculous on some of these prices anymore. Well, they certainly are. Uh, back just a moment to that. You know, that's the big heartbreak in coon hunting. Uh, you invest in a puppy. 
You don't only invest in the feed and the vet bills right. and the you initial price. You invest in in the time you spend with that dog. And like you say, you like this dog. We that, do like that, our dogs. We do that's why have I a relationship. That's why about the insurance. I found my buddy's wife sells insurance down in West Virginia. She's supposed to get back to me. She should have already done it, but she hasn't yet. And I did have insurance on a dog clear back in the 60s. I bought a red dog to one red bone day. Uh, yeah, I'll put it this way. How he won some of them hunts, I don't know. But he he <laughs> won quite a few hunts. But I, I, I didn't try him. That was my dumbness. And uh, I bought the dog. And I paid a good price for him back in the 60s. And. I thought I'm going to get him insured because I ain't going to have something happen to him. And well, uh, so I got it from Aetna at that time, but I don't even think they're in business now. I didn't put them out of business, but they went out of business. At least I think they did. But uh, so I'm determined the next dog I have here, it's going to be insured. I guarantee you that. Well, maybe our going. listeners here can help us out, Fred, because I know when you asked me if I knew someone, uh, a, a company that was insuring dogs, and the only thing I could think of was the company that used to write uh, liability insurance for the coon clubs around the country, and that uh-huh. was a, a organization called Sportsman's Insurance in New York State. But uh, if you're listening out there to this podcast – and you have information that you could direct uh, fellow listeners to concerning companies, insurance companies that will insure dogs. Um, contact us. You know, send me yeah, a message like on Facebook. I ain't the only person in this boat. There's a lot of them. Oh, absolutely, there is for sure. Well, that's the big heartbreak in coon hunting when you you do invest of your time and your really put your heart into it, literally, and then you have you, I, something like that happen. It, it really does uh, set us I, back. I bet you the first 40 years of my life, I never had a dog yet. And all of a sudden, I get two and three a year. I, well, mm. I lost three this year to cars. Right, and, right. And, uh, and well, two of them I would have kept for a good while unless somebody got crazy. Well, I often say when I'm out and about here in Florida and I see the amount of traffic, when I first came down here in the 60s in central Florida, it was orange groves and ranches, you know, and and now it's wall-to-wall traffic anywhere you go. And I say, where are all these people going? What have they got to do? And, of course, I'm out there among them too, so I guess, you know, but, but I'd say it's an increase in traffic. Maybe people are working at different uh, times of the day, or I don't know what what the reason. But it, it's uh, you know I've had dogs killed by cars, not very many, but I have over the years, and I've had friends that have had them, and it it's just a heartbreaker. It really is. Well, like I say, uh, uh, the and it's always a good one. It gets if oh, the yeah. dog was no good, you could put them out on a turnpike and then <laughs> bypass them. <laughs> That's but, for sure. The old saying, but, go play in the traffic, right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, but I'll get another one. Like I say, two of my buddies are going down to the Winter Classic, and they're going to mm. check out one for me on the yeah. way down. And uh, so they'll let me know what he does down there, and maybe they'll find a diamond in the rough. You never know. Well, in in days gone by, the South was always red bone country, or at least that's where you found a lot of dogs, although there were also a lot of good red dogs out in Missouri and out that way in Iowa through there, I recall, from my days. But uh, do you think they're regional that way, or do you find them kind of spread out all over? I always felt Kentucky and Tennessee was red bone country. I see. Yeah. I had good good luck on dog and Oklahoma. I used to do real good there. Mm. But them guys got smart on me and they found <laughs> out what them dogs really they didn't read Phil Cryer or Merrick Cooner. And uh they uh found out what dogs you're bringing and the prices changed for me anyhow. 
Well, those were probably descendants of old Dan and little Ann, you know. Yeah, (laughs) probably. Uh, I'll never forget, listen to this uh, fast story. I I was out in Missouri looking at a dog. He didn't pan out, but I had a friend that lived out there. He's dead now. He said, you want to go to a fur shell? I said, where at? He says, about 50 miles from here over in Oklahoma. I said, we ain't doing nothing else. Might as well. Should we go over this first show? I seen, and they had everything at this first show. Wolverines, which I never saw one before. And uh, they had Wolverine hides there and polar bear hides, everything. There were people there from Alaska, everywhere came to this first. It was a big one. And I went to this one guy. He was buying hides there. And I said, who sells you the most cook? I was determined to buy a dog while I was out there. I didn't care what color. I figured I'll pay for the trip if I buy a good one. I went up to him and I said, who, uh, who has, uh, some, uh, sells you the most coon hides? He says, my boys do. I says, uh, what kind of dogs your boys have? Red dogs. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. I thought I'd, I met the Pope there for a minute when he says red dog. <laughs> I says, give me their phone number. Let me so I can call them. I called the guy, and I went down there. He told me how to get to his house. And I went down there, and he had a female that he priced to me for $500. And he says he described her and everything. He owned a, they owned a ranch, a thousand acre ranch. What he didn't own, his dad owned. And if his dad didn't own it, his brother owned it. So they had 3,000 acres to hunt on. And at least that's what they told me, and I believe it. So anyhow, I seen a male dog laying in the yard over the other end. These guys never tie their dogs. The dogs train themselves just running loose, train squirrel, coon, and everything. Now, uh, there's two parts of this story where you hear the second part. But anyhow, I says, what about that male dog? What do you want for him? Oh, I wouldn't sell him. I said, well, give me a price anyhow. He says, I'd have to have at least 500 for him too. I said, well, I'll be back at dark. We'll go hunting. Okay. He says, you be here. I get back at dark and he's all ready for me. I says, what's the fault with these dogs? I said, they all got faults. He says, well, they'll both bother armadillo. Well, that ain't going to bother me in Pennsylvania. I ain't never seen an armadillo dig the concrete up or anything. So, <laughs> We go hunting, and the first thing that first thing the dogs do, they bark, bayed about two hundred yards ahead of us when we turned them loose. I go out there, and they got a big armadillo, bayed up. I said, "You got a sack or anything?" He says, "One in the back of the truck." I went back to the truck and got that sack and caught that armadillo and put it in the sack and put it in the back of his truck. I took it home and gave it to my veterinarian. He had it for about six months in his office, and he used to feed it cat food, he told me. And it <laughs> up and died. But it was a big one for, I thought it was, about 15 pounds. And anyhow, we went on. We treated a coon, but it was a den tree. He says, I'll bet you don't think there's a coon in that tree. I said, no, I didn't say nothing. I, there's probably one in there. He said, now, I could tell you don't think there's a coon in that tree. He said, give me 10 minutes, I'll be back. He ran down to the truck, got an axe out of the truck, cut the tree down, got the coon out. I said, you didn't have to do that. I put a tree in the pocket. I just reached in my pocket, and I says, I think I'll take both, uh, take them dogs. And I hand him the money. He says, he looked at the money, he said, you're going to take both them dogs? I said, yeah. I said, I think they'll work okay. <laughs> they were good dogs. I, uh, I don't mean uh, to brag, but I sold the female for more than I paid for both of them, and the male I kept for myself. I won a lot of big hunts with him. I sold him when he was seven years old for seventeen hundred and fifty dollars, and he was a heck of a dog. I liked him. Uh, well, I went out there one time. Somebody traded a four wheeler 
in on a dog to me. They didn't have all the money. I have no use for a four-wheeler. I'll kill myself on one. I had a sit near probably six months, so I called this guy out in Oklahoma, the same guy I got the two from. I said, Danny, I says, uh, you have any use for a four-wheeler? He says, well, how good is it? I said, oh, it's an A1 shape. I said, well, you got in a red dog. And he told me. And uh, I said, I'll trade you that four-wheeler, even up for it, and bring it out there. He said, bring it on out. We'll do some business. So anyhow, like you're saying now, the couple of years went by from the first two dogs. And I bought a dog or two in between from but he got smarter on the price or else I would have probably gotten it for five or 600, but I'm trading it four wheeler. And it was worth at least 2000. Well, I get there around 11 in the morning and uh, he says, uh, I said, where's the dog at? He says, jump in the truck. We rode to different hilltops and listened for the dog treeing somewhere. He says, he's treed somewhere. He's got a cat or coon or or uh, squirrel or something. All his dogs are like that. They're hunting all the time. And uh, anyhow, we, we looked till two o'clock, never heard the dog nowhere. We went back to the house. He said, well, you're going to have to get, I said, I wanted to get on home. He, he took the four-wheeler for a ride. He was satisfied with it. He says, uh, well, you're going to have to stay here to, uh, 420. I said, what's 420? High school band coming out to play or what? He said, no, the dog will be here. <laughs> he knows it's child time at 420. This is God's truth. I told this story 8,000 times. 420, here comes that dog lobbing up the road just like he has his last meal. I grabbed him. I said, I'll get him a hamburger along the way. And I just threw him in the truck, took his car off, put mine on the head to Pennsylvania. But I'll never forget that. 420, that's okay. I, I showed him to a guy in West Virginia. He was a good dog. He didn't suit me, but he was a good dog. And I showed him he kept him till he died. He liked Loved the dog, and he was a nice dog. Well, and, Fred, uh, uh, that's a great story, and uh, and uh, oh, four twenty. That's is that what you named him? No, I, I forget <laughs> what I call. I forget what I called him. I kept the name whatever yeah. he had. I don't remember yeah. now, but I'll I'll never forget that uh, how that dog knew that time. He was so used to it. But I could imagine any dog could get trained that well if you feed him all the time at 8 in the morning. They right, expect it at right, 8 in the morning. Right. Well, and, speaking of time, we have been at it here for a little over a half hour, and uh, we're adding on here to a podcast uh, that I did about uh, my book, Gone to the Dogs, A Coon Hunter's Journey. So we're going to have to wrap it up for today, Fred. But, man, it's good to hear from you. Well, it's good to hear from, from you. Yeah. I ain't heard from you in a long time. Well, thought, it's been too long, yeah. I thought maybe your wife didn't allow you out or something. <laughs> well, we won't go there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fred Moran, the Red Bone Man from the hills of Pennsylvania. Man, it's good to talk to you again. And hey, Thanks I'll be, for calling, Steve. I'll be calling soon. You take care, buddy. All right, buddy. We'll see you. Bye. Okay, folks, that is a wrap for this week on the Gone to the Dogs podcast. If anybody asks you where Steve Fielder, tell him he's over there in the hills of Pennsylvania trying to catch up old 420 with Fred Moran. He's gone to the dogs. Mm-hmm.